Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Rick, for reading the Word of the Lord for us. The book of Acts begins with Jesus giving the early church a mission. The mission, as we heard last week, is to be witnesses for Jesus, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Testifying, declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus, proclaiming to people that now there's forgiveness of sins is available. Eternal salvation is an option for those who trust in Jesus. And remember, this mission was given to regular, ordinary people like you and me. And this mission is still for regular, ordinary people like you and me today. We are still on the mission. And this mission is not to be carried out, though, in our own strength. It is to be empowered by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. He's the one who grants power to believers in Jesus. He's the one who sets the church on fire. He's the one who sends us out on mission. And today we're looking at Acts 1, 12-26, and it's here in this passage that we find the church, they've received this promise of power, that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them, but it hasn't happened yet. We see a church that's been given a mission, but maybe they're uncertain as to how exactly that mission is going to play out, when it's going to happen, all the details surrounding that mission. And so they're waiting. And in these verses, we're going to get a historical account of what the first church did while they waited, but we're also going to get some insight as to how a church that is focused on the mission of God should function. So as we look at these verses, we're going to see that a mission-focused church is devoted to prayer, they're committed to the Word of God, and ultimately they trust the Lord's will in their decisions. So as we turn to the first uh, few verses here, I'm going to read verse 12 to 14 just to give a little more uh, background information. We're going to see this church meeting together uh, with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. And that's the first point for this morning. The mission-focused church is united and prayerful. United and prayerful. Verse 12 to 14 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So this group of people, remember, they had just seen the resurrected Jesus ascend to heaven. This is fresh in their minds. They've just seen this, and they're probably still filled with a lot of emotions, a lot of excitement, a lot of maybe even some confusion, and almost like some happy shock. Like, wait, what did we just see here? Jesus floated up into the sky, and then he was gone. And there's 
like joy in that, but then there's also maybe like, what do we do now? I mean, can you believe what happened? But, but now what? I mean, he told us to go back to Jerusalem and to wait, and so now we're in Jerusalem and we're waiting, but what do we do while we wait? I mean, they could have done any number of things while they waited. They could have just reminisced about some of the miracles that Jesus did, some of the things that he taught. They could have just hung out and played some games while they waited. But what did they do? Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They prayed. They prayed together. The church prayed together. They were united. It says they were of one accord. This is this idea, a specific phrase that's actually fairly common in the book of Acts. It speaks to a deep unity. Having this single focus, this idea of we're all going the same direction. We're all here praying. We're all here waiting and praying for the Holy Spirit to come upon us and then to send us out in power to be witnesses. So we're united and we're praying for this. Last weekend, there was a decently popular sporting event on TV. It's called the Super Bowl. You may have heard of it. And uh, I actually watched part of the game. And as I watched, I thought to myself, okay, wait a minute. Here are two groups of people, two teams that are united. Different people with different backgrounds, different histories, different positions, all going towards the same goal, laying everything on the line so that they could win a football game. And I thought... Man, if these men can overcome differences, if they can be united and focus on their mission, which is getting a small silver trophy that one day is going to get tarnished, and getting their names written in a record book that one day people are going to forget about, then surely our church could unite around our mission of spreading the gospel so that people can receive an eternal crown that will never tarnish or fade away, and so that people's names could be written in the book of life and be with God forever and ever and ever. Maybe we could do that. They were united. They were devoted to prayer. Prayer is an emphasized, repeated theme in the book of Acts. It shows up in almost every chapter of this book. There's some reference to people praying. The book of Acts is very clear that when God's people pray, God moves. Stuff happens. Lives are changed. And it's such a simple but powerful reminder for us. Like, oh, wait a minute. If we want to see God move, if we want to see lives change, then we got to get to praying. That's what we got to do. And maybe we know this, and maybe we've heard this, like, oh, yeah, I've got to pray. But here's the reality, and I'll be honest. Sometimes we have seasons of prayer that are more dry, or more wearisome. It's hard to stay motivated. It's hard to keep going, to keep praying. We get worn out. We get tired. We get exhausted mentally, spiritually, even physically. I'm just like, I've been praying for this thing for a long time, and I haven't seen any results yet, or I haven't gotten the answer that I'm asking for yet. And it's hard to continue in prayer sometimes. We can get discouraged. Or, or maybe when we get a result that we didn't pray for. Like there's a whole whack load of people who were praying on Friday that the snow would stop for night to shine, but it didn't. And it can be easy to get discouraged and beat down. But I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to keep persevering in prayer. Because though we get tired, though we get worn out, God never does. God never does. Isaiah 40 
28 to 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall, shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. I can testify to that. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Keep praying. Don't give up. Keep seeking the Lord. Rely on His strength. We get tired, but He never does. And that's what this church did. They kept praying while they waited. They kept praying for days, men and women, praying for the promise of the Spirit. And as I studied this passage, I was struck by something really interesting. They were praying for something that had been promised to them. Jesus said, you're going to get the Spirit. He's going to come in power. And then they went and prayed. It's interesting that though they knew with certainty this was going to happen, that certainty didn't diminish their prayers, but actually fueled them. We have a promise from God, and it's not like, oh, well, because we have a promise from God, we don't need to pray. It's because we have a promise from God, let's pray so that it happens, and happens even sooner. And I thought about that, and I said, okay, so this is not specifically our promise today. We live post-Acts chapter 2, which we're going to hear about next week. The Spirit has come on the believers. But there are many promises in the Word of God that we can be praying for, one of which shows up in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. As Jesus was ascended into heaven, two angels showed up and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will return one day. It's a promise. We, we sang one of the songs, King of Heaven, come down. When was the last time we prayed for Jesus to return? I thought about that. When was the last time I said, we have this promise, Jesus is going to come back? When was the last time I prayed for it? I mean, we like to think about it. It's going to be great. Jesus comes back. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to establish this new earth, and it's going to be perfect and forever, wipe away every tear. But when was the last time I said, in prayer, God, send your son back. Jesus, come back. Because I get so focused on what I want. I get so focused on my desires, my circumstances, that my prayers then show up looking uh, in that way. And I pray for me instead of the things that God wants. I pray for the things that I want. And so often, I'm not praying for God to accomplish the mission of the church through His people, let alone send your son back. I'm just like, okay, Lord, help me through the day. My baby's crying again and I have no sleep. Not a bad prayer, but, but focused on the mission prayers. Jesus, come back. Come back. And, and you know what? Unite us in prayer and send us out on mission until you come back. Those would be prayers that I would be willing to wager God would be happy to answer. So that's the early church united in prayer. 
But we also see that they were following the Scriptures, that this mission-focused church is committed to the Word of God. So back to verse 15 now. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was all about 120 and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. I'm going to skip down to verse 20. We'll hit 18 and 19 in a second. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So as the church is praying, they come to this realization. Judas must be replaced, and Scripture instructed that. It wasn't just their random idea. Peter quotes from two Psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, as evidence that this was in fact God's plan, that even though the Messiah, his chosen one, that Jesus would be be betrayed, that someone would come alongside and have to replace this other person. Let another take his office. Way at the start of Jesus' ministry, he called 12 disciples. These 12 disciples were meant to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And now there was only 11. Judas had died. They needed 12. You might say, why do they need 12? Is it just simply so that they can symbolically represent the 12 tribes of Israel? Is it so that you know, 12 apostles um, can be like a full witness to the 12 tribes of Israel? And, and so they needed that. I, I think that's part of it. But I also think it's to fulfill Jesus' own words in Matthew 19, verse 28. He said, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on how many? Twelve thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we see there's a deep commitment to the Word of God here. They're not just saying, oh, we need twelve because we like twelve. We need twelve because the Word has said twelve. Scripture had to be fulfilled. Uh, Just a note, Sidebar on verse 16, where it says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. You could underline that verse. What a great verse that helps reinforce the teaching, the doctrine, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, that the Bible isn't just um, men simply writing things down, but that it's actually the word of God. The early church viewed Scripture highly as God's very words. And because they were the very words of God, they were to be obeyed and followed. And this is an issue that each and every church and each and every person has to come to terms with. Right here. Is this actually the Word of God? Is this actually divinely inspired or not? And if it is, are we going to obey it? And I've got to be honest, it's frustrating and heartbreaking to see so many people and even many churches walking away from this doctrine, questioning it, doing their own thing, adding their own stuff. And they're no longer basing their lives, their ministries, or even their entire organizations on the Word of God. They base them on all sorts of other things, but not the Bible. That's not what we see with the early church. They were committed to the Word. And they were committed to the Word even in the midst of tragedy and betrayal. You say, well, what do you mean tragedy and betrayal? What are you talking about? Well, remember, they didn't 
see the betrayal of Judas coming. We, we read the account and we're like, oh, Judas is the bad guy. We're just waiting for it. They didn't read it. They lived it. What a shock that must have been, especially for those 12. Like, wait a minute. He was one of us. He was with us for three years. The shock, the tragedy, the heartbreak. What do we do? There's only 11 of us. They went to the Word. What about you and I? What do we do when tragedy happens? When betrayal happens, when heartbreak happens, when difficult circumstances happen, when politicians say and do really odd things, what do we do? Where do we go? Do we go to the Word of God? Some of us, maybe we go to a trusted friend. Some of us like our magazines or our blogs or our podcasts or maybe our favorite YouTube channel or whatever it is. And those aren't necessarily bad things, but they're not the inspired words of God. Are we asking, what does the Bible say as we face things in our life? Let's be people who are committed to the Word of God. Now back to verse 18 to 19. I want to touch on this for a second. We get this parenthetical summary of what happened to Judas. It says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field uh, was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. So, kind of a gruesome little story here. Some have actually argued that this account contradicts the account that we see in the Gospels. The Gospels say that Judas went out and hung himself, but here we have something else going on here. Well, actually, these do not contradict themselves. They, they complement each other to give us a fuller picture of what happened. Okay? So Judas did hang himself, most likely on a tree branch. And either the rope broke or the branch itself broke. And two possibilities. One, as he fell, maybe there were some rocks underneath the tree, which he fell, and then out came the bowels. Or he had been hanging for such a long time that when he hit, the impact caused the bursting of the bowels. Gruesome and a sad end to one who had been so close to Jesus for three years. But these, I just want to show that these accounts complement each other. So now back to verse 20. What do we do? There's 11 of us. We need 12. They've quoted uh, the, these verses from the Psalms. And then uh, down to verse 21. So... What are we going to do? One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So the early church sets up some criteria here. If we're going to find someone to replace Judas, they've got to be one of us from the start all the way to have seen things and seen Jesus not only be resurrected, but also ascended so that they can also be a witness with us and testify to who Jesus is and what he's done. Cool. Verse 23, though. They put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. That's confusing. He's got three names. And Matthias. One name. So they get these two guys. What do we do? How do we decide between these two guys? Do we just go on looks and charm? Do we just go on income? Who makes the most money? Who's the more popular? Who's got the greater skill set? What do they do? How do they decide? What we see, though, is that the mission-focused church put their trust in the Lord and in His will as they make this decision. 
Trust the Lord's will. Look at verse 24. It says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They prayed, Lord, you show us. Once again, another declaration of dependence from the church on the Lord. We're not quite sure how to make this decision here. Would you please show us? This is a pivotal moment for the early church in discerning how God was going to carry out their mission. Right? We've got to get 12 again, so how is this going to happen? And so they pray about it. They pray about it. And I love where it says, you know the hearts of all. Well, yeah, he knows the hearts of all because he's designed the hearts of all. He's made each one of us. But because God knows the hearts of all, he knows who should be in which position and and when they should be in that position. He knows who should be in which position and when they should be in that position. Not just talking about the early church. He knows the hearts of all. Think about that for a second. Your boss, your teacher, prime minister... He knows. Trust God. Okay? Trust God, not Trudeau. Trust God, not Trudeau. God knows what he's doing. He knows the hearts of all. Okay? So they pray. But they still... uh, then, Then they do this thing in verse 26. I love this. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. If you're not familiar with this idea of casting lots, um, it's a practice that in some ways is similar to the game of Yahtzee. Seriously. They would uh, get some stones, and they would put markings on them, or maybe they would even put names on it. So this one is for Matthias, this one is for a triple name, you know. And they would put these stones in a cup or maybe a bowl, and then they would shake them out onto the ground or onto a table, and whatever kind of rolled out, that's how they cast a lot. Um, and they say, okay, that's the decision. And you might think, that seems really random, and leaving it to chance. Like, after all of this discussion, after all this prayer, they just roll some dice, I don't understand that. Well, it was fairly common, actually, in Israel. And uh, it's not something that's odd. Um, in Proverbs 16.33, we see here, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Again, they're committed to the word here. What they're doing is they're trying to come up with a way to remove as much human interference as possible. So it's not like, oh, we really liked Matthias. No, we really liked Joseph. They said, Lord, you show us who. We don't know who. Here are the names. You decide. That, that's why they were doing that. Okay? The lot fell on Matthias, and the church understood that to be a direct appointment from Christ. And they trusted it. And then they had 12 apostles once more. Uh, just a note. Casting lots doesn't occur in Scripture after Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. This is the last recorded instance that we have of this practice as far as making decisions amongst believers. So it's descriptive of what happened, not necessarily prescriptive of what we should do. Does that make sense? Okay. Today, believers in Jesus have, are indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit who is to lead and to guide and to direct us in, in our decision-making. But if I can be honest... 
Sometimes, even though we have the Spirit of God directing us, we get to a place and we're still kind of uncertain between some options we face in our day-to-day lives. Should I do A? Should I do B? And we don't have a clear leading. We just, we feel torn. What do we do? What can we do? Should we just roll the dice? Should we just flip a coin? I don't think so. How do we make decisions? Well, I want to outline just four quick kind of practical takeaways here that we can learn from Acts chapter 1. First thing is that pray. We should pray. We should pray. Continue to seek the Lord. Continue to ask the Holy Spirit to guide and direct until that maybe he just hasn't revealed it yet. So don't give up praying. Okay, Lord, help me. Help me. Help me understand. Where do you want us to go with this? Yes, God has given us the ability, you know, with reason and logic and problem-solving skills and all that kind of stuff. But let's remember, God's ways are different than our ways and he, has, he understands the full big picture. And so what he wants may be different than what we want. And so we've got to keep praying. Keep praying. Second thing is do homework. A couple of people just looked at me like, I don't like homework. Do homework. The early church did the work. They set out that criteria. Who would qualify? Who might meet the standards of who could replace Judas? So, if possible, don't rush into any major decisions. If possible. Right? Take the time and, and gather the info, and that should help narrow the options down a little bit, right? Whatever the decision is, whether it's schooling options, career trajectory, you know, moving cities, buy this house or not, or even the types of friends that we want to choose. Well, who do I really want to be hanging out with? Let me do some homework here and figure this out. Third thing is filter the decision through a kingdom lens. Filter the decision through a kingdom lens. What do I mean by that? Um, what I mean is, When we're faced with decisions and we have multiple options, we can ask ourselves these types of questions. What will help advance the mission of God more? A or B? What what option do we think will help expand the kingdom of God more? If we ask these questions, it should also help to narrow the field a little bit. One scholar has said, as believers, we should approach every decision by weighing how each choice will either enhance or hinder gospel advancement. That's a good filter. Oh, okay, so we think that way. And the last, the fourth one, it's, it's trust the Lord. Continue to trust the Lord. Sometimes it's decision time. You've got to make the decision today. There's a deadline, and you're still not 100% sure, A or B, or maybe there's 10 options, whatever it is, and you've got to make a decision. What do we do? My suggestion is make a decision with confident humility. What is confident humility? Confident humility is picking one and going with it. I'm going with it. I made the decision. I'm going for it. But then holding it loosely enough so that if God directs otherwise, you're okay with that. Right? God will either affirm the decision in many ways or he may choose to adjust and guide and correct it into a different one. And we have to trust him because he knows what's best. He knows what he's doing. Remember, He's good. He cares for you. So even when we make maybe a wrong decision, in his care, he guides us along and says, hey, no, actually I want you to do this over here. He knows what he's doing. And as we walk through the book of Acts, we're going to be reminded time and time again that God knows what he's doing. He knows how to accomplish the mission. He knew what was best for the early church in having Matthias chosen instead of Joseph. Right? And he knows what's best for our church today. 
He knows what's best. And He knows what's best for each one of our lives. He really does. And I hope that truth brings some comfort to you this morning. Let that just sink in. Wait a minute. He knows what's best and He cares for me. Let that sink in. Let that comfort you as we seek to filter our decisions through the kingdom of God. As we look to His Word. As we seek the Spirit's guidance in prayer. So that God gets the glory in everything that we do. So that His kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to thank You again for Your Word. We thank You that we can meet and we can open Your Word. We can be encouraged and challenged by Your Word, but we thank You that it is your word, that it's true. We also want to thank you for your son. The word of God become flesh, dwelt among us, paid for our sins, died for us, rose again in victory, offering forgiveness and eternal life, salvation. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We want to thank you also for Holy Spirit, who guides us, who leads us, who directs us into the ways that we ought to go. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to truly trust your leading, to take the time to seek you and to trust you. Help us to apply this kingdom filter to our decisions, to think about what's actually best for the kingdom of God, not just my life. I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we do that, that you would also empower us to be witnesses here in 2018, sent out on mission. Guide us when we don't know what to do. Would you be our vision when we're lacking it, today and always? In Jesus' name, amen.